0: What is the role of art in communicating scientific vision? How artists have been helping in shaping an innovative culture in a satellite and AI company? And why should small startups launch their own artists in residence? All of these and more with today's speaker, Andrew Zoli. Let's start. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking, Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi hey podcast listeners as always thank you for coming back with so much content available choosing us is something that is valuable really today is our last episode for season two we launched this season in march of this year and who would have imagined that it would pass so quickly this is episode number 23 so if you missed the previous ones you can go back and check them out my name is Niran. and I'm the founder of the Artian, a consultancy and training company that applies an art mindset in business environments. What does it mean? We partner with organizations that want to work with and learn from art and artists so they can have more humanistic, innovative and creative working environments. Today, you will hear from Andrew Zoli about the endless benefits of integrating art, science, technology and engineering. Zoli currently oversees sustainability and global impact initiatives at Planet, a breakthrough space and AI organization that has deployed the largest constellation of Earth-observing satellites in history. Some of his previous adventures include being the primary creative and curatorial force behind PopTech, a well-known innovation and social change network. He served as a fellow of the National Geographic Society and served on the board of the Brooklyn Academy of Music. He is an author and speaker who regularly speaks on resiliency how to help people and systems persist, recover, and thrive amid disruption. If you keep up with our episodes, you will notice that today's episode is the flip side of a previous episode or the other perspective of it. The last episode of season one with the artist Forrest Stearns, discuss the influence of artist in residency at Planet from an artist point of view. Today, it will be from the management point of view. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the Artian podcast. It's great to be with you. Andrew, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? sure my day
1: job is overseeing the global impact and sustainability portfolio of an organization called planet that's deployed the largest constellation of earth observing satellites in history those satellites orbit the earth in a giant ring and every day they image the entire surface of the earth in high resolution at about three meters per pixel, which isn't enough to read your newspaper, but it's enough to see every tree and every building and every road in the world. But more broadly, I write and think about the uses of advanced technology and the ways in which we can use them to address really complex and intractable challenges, because this is a period of such tremendous volatility and disruption, much of it caused by our a rival on the planet, and we're really the driving force of a lot of the change and a lot of the disruption. And so, being able to use that information to live more lightly uh, and more respectfully on the Earth is really what what my daily job is.
0: So, one of the reasons that I wanted to speak with you is not only that you mix humanities, social responsibilities, space technologies, futurism, but you also lead one of the projects that I'm fond of, which is the art program at Planet.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, it's one of our most beloved programs. Uh, So Planet has put up hundreds of satellites into orbit. And one of the programs that we love the most and that receives a lot of attention, uh, these are satellites that are about the size of a loaf of bread. So we have these hundreds of satellites on orbit. And we, the satellites are covered in thermal panels, and the panels, uh, we can then laser etch artwork on them. This is a program that was started by our founding artist in residence, Forrest Stearns, and has since expanded to cover d- uh, dozens of. Of different artists. So we have one part of the program where we're literally putting art on spacecraft and we're putting art on rocket ships and we're putting art on the the, uh, radar dishes that collect the data when it comes back down from the satellites. So we put it on all of our physical stuff, all of the physical assets, but we also then each year we select from hundreds of applications of really extraordinary artists who we work with. We actually uh, give them a stipend and a residency and resources and access to the technology and access to our engineers and the rest of our staff to be work with us to, to make art that isn't necessarily going to go into space, but is about our relationship to the planet or our relationship to each other, as we understood sort of through this, this giant technological system that we've built. And the work that's coming out is amazing. It is just <laughs> incredible to see the work that these artists do. It, it's just amazing. I mean, I hope you can, your listeners might be might uh, just listening to this. And so I hope they can hear in my voice, like it's, it is just as awe-inspiring to see what the artists do with these technologies that go into space as it is to actually watch these technologies go into space. It's really an amazing experience.
0: So, Andrew, you're touching so many points I want to refer to, but maybe before that, I want to take you one step back and ask you a question about the artist-in-residence program that you have, especially in a company like Planet, a satellite company. Often, when I talk about artist in residence programs in companies people tend to think that it's only the big rich famous company that have those programs now what fascinated me about planet is that you started the artist in residence program when you were 24 people company and i think it's an amazing to think that a startup with 24 people actually hire a painter to lead an artist-in-residence program. Now, obviously, startups at that stage are obsessed with every dollar that they have and they spend. And what I'm trying to understand is what is the logic behind that? Actually, bringing a painter as the 25th employee in a satellite company. Can, can, Can you explain me this, please? It's a great point. I think it really
1: has to do with the distinctive vision of the people who founded Planet. So I I joined Planet. I like to joke when we had, you know, we didn't have satellites on orbit. We had hoodies and aspirations. This was a small team of engineers, and it was a an engineering and research and development project at that point to figure out how to do it, how to get all of these. So if you met the original team from Planet, and you saw them at 100 meters, you might think to yourself, these people will never get anything done. They they look like a bunch of scruffy folks. But if you started to to talk to them, if you got close and really engaged them, two things became immediately clear. And the first one was that these are the only people who are going to get this done. This kind of work requires an intensely detailed technological vision. And they had it, no question. But on top of that, they also had this rhetoric about using space to help life on Earth. It wasn't about the sometimes when human beings go into places that are extraordinary, that, that are out of the ordinary of, of lived experience. I'm talking here about people who you know, cross the Arctic on foot or people do polar expeditions or people who who go to the edge of human experience. They do it for the thrill they do it for the ego satisfaction. This group of people wanted to do this work, not just to explore, which is a terrific reason for wanting to do these things, not just to push the limits of of our capabilities, but to help humanity navigate this moment of incredibly complex transitions. That combination of values and technological aspiration was very distinctive. It wasn't common. It doesn't really matter what size of organization you're describing because it's not common in little organizations all the time. It's not common in big organizations all the time. This ability to fuse, and you hear, unfortunately, I think you you often hear a lot of, I would describe it as sort of sanctimonious language from Silicon Valley, you know, we're, we're building this dating app and we're going to change the world. <laughs> well, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, you might become a millionaire many times over. <laughs> your world yeah. might change, but the world is going to be held, yeah. you know, going to be largely the same. So to, to really dig into the to the answer to your question, why, why did Planet have this instinct when it was very small? It really comes from this conversation between a couple of people, but I want to, in order to understand it, I have to just tell you a word about why Planet was founded, like what's the backdrop, what's happening.
0: So what is the backdrop?
1: The backdrop isn't about Silicon Valley. It's not about technology and it's not about space. Those, are, those things will come into the story in a minute. But what is interesting is what's happening on Earth. So human beings, we now live in the age of humans. We live in what's called the Anthropocene, the period of time when human beings have not become a major factor of change. We've become the major factor of change we are living in the decade where we will either avoid or lock in the most serious consequences of climate change we will either turn the ship or we won't turn the ship but we're currently the our ship is headed into dangerous and very volatile waters waters that will have tremendous consequence for humanity so in order to make or to take effective action the first step is to see yourself in context.
0: To raise awareness in a way. Even more than that, you know, every
1: instrument of scientific discovery is also an instrument of moral discovery. We invent the alphabet, the microscope, the internet, the gene sequencer, and in every instance, we begin to see ourselves differently, in, we see ourselves in context, and that is seeing yourself in context is the first step to taking moral responsibility for the stewardship of the earth which is really what planet's trying to do and we're we're yes we're selling you know data and we're we're trying to make a going company but it's to do that it's to fulfill that mission so here's the thing that's interesting about that we only get to do that mission that mission is only fulfilled if everybody can use those kinds of tools to steward their portion of the earth and in order to do that, we need people to feel like space is something that belongs to them. And so why did Earth, when we have 24 people, decide to put art on satellites? It's because it humanizes the mission, because it puts the human thumbprint on space in a way that you don't have to be a scientist with specialized access to get access. And, and also because art is a different way of knowing it creates a different way of understanding.
0: So I want to know why, why do you think art is a different way of knowing? I think it has to do somewhat with the
1: status of facts. I'm speaking to you, you know, with a whole bunch of technology. There's, there's microphones in front of you and there's microphones in front of me and cameras in front of you and cameras in front of me and the internet between us and computers and all of these other things. They are the, the manifestation of a kind of technocratic society. And one of the core implicit assumptions of Western society is about the role of fact in creating understanding. Because in order to build all those technologies that are allowing you and I to have this conversation, we had to proceed from fact to fact. But for many other domains, in which we have to encourage human behavior, we don't go from fact to behavior. We go from emotion to behavior. We move from feeling to doing, not from understanding to doing. Understanding is important often for creating the feelings that motivate us to action, right? But if you take the feeling out, you have often denuded you've diminished the power of the arguments. Just think about it like this, think about climate change. I I was just telling you a whole bunch of facts about the earth a minute ago. I could give you 50 more facts, a hundred more facts, a thousand more facts, a million more facts. And there are a million more facts, but those facts, if you're not convinced by the first 10 facts, you probably are not gonna be convinced by a million facts, but you might be motivated to act on one fact, the right kind of feeling, and that feeling is, and that sensation, that way of knowing, that's what the arts. That's a, a, it, the arts is a different pathway. It's why we weep when we hear certain passages of music. Why we linger in front of paintings. We don't linger in front of spreadsheets. We don't most of <laughs> them. You know, we don't linger in front of um, wiring diagrams. Though they are, they represent, I will say those things have their own kind of beauty, but for most people, what we have to do is create feelings of connection. How do I come to understand the truth of our interconnection? Well, I think of the arts as a technology of interconnection. They show us and reveal to us both the, the ways in which we are ennobled, they elevate us they reveal ourselves to us, they reveal the world to us, and they reveal the relationships to us.
0: Listening to you, Andrew, uh, just shows me why I really am fascinated by Planet, because it's a company that puts technology in the service of human, and not the other way around. And often when we see technology companies, especially before the pandemic, it seems to me that it's always humans at the service of technology and not the other way around. So I want to ask you something about the program that you are currently running, and I want to read the mission statement of the program, and I would like to get your thoughts on that. So what you are saying or what you are writing uh, on your website, which we obviously will share on the show notes, is that the mission or the vision of the program is basically we hold a bedrock belief in the power of the arts to enrich, challenge, and expand our understanding of life on Earth. Now, I'm using this quote because you are a very scientific-oriented company, and often we are living in a society that admires the STEM thinking, science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, and often... As a society, we tend to give more value to the science and, in a way, neglect maybe the arts. And I'm interested, why do you think we need the arts to understand life on Earth, as your mission statement uh, suggests? Well, the
1: first thing I would say about that, it's it's a really great question. I think the first thing is that the arts represent sort of half of our brains you know i this is i i i actually just i'm trying to talk talk about this in a way that doesn't use this metaphor because I feel like it's a it's too simplistic a metaphor but i guess I guess what I would say to you is that what is needed now is a new humanism is a new whole brained kind of organization, and systems of thinking and ways of valuing so maybe instead of thinking about it, like, why do we need the arts when we have science? Because I want to say, in some ways, it's a powerful question. And in some ways, and I mean this with deep affection, it's kind of an extraordinarily, it's an extraordinary question to ask, because think about what it would mean if the premise of the question were true. If the premise of the question, first of all, there's two different ways of understanding this. The First of all, it would assume that science has all the answers, which it doesn't. It just doesn't. Science is not a repository. It's not merely a repository of what is known, but it's also a way of interrogating what is not known. And so science is continually reframing, revising, questioning, expanding, invalidating. It's It's a system of knowing. And part of the process of learning and knowing through science is understanding the vast vastly larger terrain, we do not know. The second thing is that most people don't think like scientists, but most people don't think like most other people, period. Which is to say, most people don't think like doctors, most people don't think like lawyers, most people don't think like scientists, people think like people, and there's a great diversity of ways of knowing. But even if we were to say, okay, well, we have this one system of knowledge that is important, we would be invalidating not just the arts, but all of the other ways of knowing, the indigenous modes of modalities of wisdom. And this is the tension that I I would get at in your question because when you look at cultures around the world who have lived in, not in perfect equilibrium with the world, because we've never had perfect equilibrium, but healthy systems, live in dynamic disequilibrium they live kind of wobbling around a kind of center of gravity because change happens but change has happened in ways that could be reintegrated to allow a kind of like movement around a healthy center and what you find in societies that have been very long-lived societies is that they take very long-term views of the future
0: and basically we are living from quarter to quarter and from election to election
1: exactly and and often for, you know in our last uh, presidential administration in the US we lived from tweet to tweet we li- we would live often from hour to hour and and this sense of the world as sort of unmanageably fast our society when researchers a wonderful researcher at the University of British Columbia refers to Us, as weird, and what he means is Western, industrialized, educated, rich, and democratic. Those societies, those weird societies, are really outliers in the way that we think. We are outliers from the rest of humanity. So to bring it back to the question you asked, which is, what does the arts give you? When I said described it as the arts are a technology, they're a way of knowing, they're a way of understanding, they're a way of illuminating connection The hyper-fragmented, hyper-accelerated world that we live in is an illusion. It's not the totality of the human experience by a long shot. So when art inspires stillness in us, when it, it, it allows us to experience information both emotionally, intellectually, kinesthetically, aesthetically at the same time, it is returning us to something which is much more like the human norm and taking the blinders of this kind of society off. And so we do need the power of those tools. We do need the power of those technologies, but we need to unite them to a more comprehensive and ennobled sense of what our human faculties provide us than just what that narrow band of information provides us.
0: Yeah, you know, probably you already understand that the reason I ask you this question because we often hear educators, business leaders, government officials saying we need to teach only STEM. So hearing it from you, someone that work in a cutting-edge satellite space technology companies, and seeing this vision. I think it's kind of a lesson for everyone to to learn from. So, thank you for for that. Uh, I think it's very important to the mission that we are trying to promote uh, at the Artian. Uh, Andrew, before I will ask you about the second part of the mission statement or the vision statement, let's take a short break.
1: Would you like to work personally with Nier to develop and grow your artistic mindset? At The Artian, we work with organizations and individuals to achieve greater success. Through our art-based leadership sales and innovation training, we show organizations that there is another way of thinking and another possibility of acting. Visit us at www.theartian.com. That is T-H-E-A-R-T-I-A-N.com to learn more.
0: Thanks for coming back. So, Andrew... For the second part of the mission or vision statement, I want to uh, ask you, and it goes like this. We bring together art and science to build a culture of creative entrepreneurship and innovation at Planet. And my question is, how does art contribute to building a culture of innovation? What what do you think? I,
1: I reflect on work that has been done on the progress of scientific teams research teams there's a a number of researchers who have looked at the kind of when you're solving a complex problem whether it's a complex engineering problem or you're doing the work of science both of the science and engineering have a uh, a certain aspect that they share in common They're, they're not the same thing engineering and science are different but they do share some common elements. And one of those elements is sustained contact with new and ambiguous information. I try, I'm trying to figure something out. I'm either trying to make it work for, in the context of a larger system I'm building, or I'm just trying to understand it. And so I try something and I call that an engineering exercise or or a scientific experiment. And then i collect some information and the information is often people think that you know our mental model of of those activities is that the data tells a story but anyone who works with data will tell you that often data is telling you like a thousand stories and some of the stories are contradictory and it's confusing and ambiguous so now you're encountering ambiguous information and the question is how do you make sense what's the sense making process and what various anthropologists have found is that when teams are filled with the people from the same background, they tend to use the same metaphors to decode the ambiguity. So they will look at a situation and say, ah, okay, I'm using my prior knowledge to interpret these results. And so if it's a group of biologists, they'll all use the same references to prior biological experiments to try to deduce what's going on in the data. If, however, the teams are filled with biologists and chemists and physicists and engineers and designers and artists and weirdos and all kinds of other, you know, like a much broader array of people, then the analogical reasoning field is wider. And those teams tend to make progress faster because they are reasoning about the data, about the ambiguity that they're confronted with, with a wider variety of metaphors could be more like this. It could be more like this. Hey, we have never considered that it could be like this from this field. And so what you need is enough diversity so that you widen the field of interpretation. And you need to counterbalance that with enough consistency so that people are are able to talk to each other. Because if they're just radically diverse, they they will have trouble explaining themselves to each other. So there is sort of an outward pressure to diversify and an inward pressure to consolidate your perspective. So the important thing
0: here is, is how you get those two things to live together. How? Do you have a tip how to get these types together? Because one of the things that I've noticed is that the moment you tell a business manager about artists in the organization, immediately... They think about people entering into the corporate offices and start to spray paint. Now it has its own value, but what would you say to them? Yes. And, and, you know, I will just say we shouldn't diminish the impact
1: of that because one of the things that people coming in and spray painting on, on the walls does is it signals to people in their culture that you can bend the rules, that the world is more elastic. The idea is that the arts, when they're given manifestation in in your physical spaces, is a reminder of the kind of alternative perspectives and creative permissions that good cultures have. Good cultures balance that inward drive to consistency and the outward drive to, to diversify the perspectives. And and when we talk about diversity, we, you know, we talk about the essential aspects of diversity in terms of race and age and gender and ethnicity and background and life experience. To these other essential aspects, we can also add cognitive diversity, the, the range of different ways of thinking. And one of the challenges in many corporations is that, you know, human beings don't come with instruction manuals. And when you enter into an organization, one of the first things you have to do as an employee is figure out how will I succeed here? What is it really expected of me? Put the job description aside for a moment. What does the culture of this place demand? And typically organizations don't have a book that says culture manual for our company, right? Here's how to, here's how to succeed. And so what people do is they, they learn by emulation. And that creates a culture often where the leader and leaders of the organization, their cognitive styles get copied. If you find that the leader likes really long, verbose arguments, you'll find yourself starting to make really long, verbose arguments. If you find that the leader likes really, really short, pithy, you know, just give me the bullet points, I don't want the detail, you'll find yourself synthesizing the bullet points for them. What happens, unfortunately, is that can create a culture of cognitive lock-in, of groupthink, of everybody following the cognitive style that they think is the one that should lead them to the right solution. So, and that turns out to be one of the death knells of innovation because in order to think differently, you have to have a culture that encourages and permits you to think differently. Embedding the arts, it's not the only thing we do. You also need a culture where it's okay to ask impolite questions, where it's okay to stop a process that you don't think is right and question it. And and the culture has to be sufficiently robust to absorb those kinds of actions. But alongside those kinds of systems of being able to ask questions and think differently is the way in which different ways of knowing and different ways of understanding which comes from the arts also sends a signal. So that's how we we think about it. Because the thing that I would say to any organization is that the hyper-accelerated world that we're living through and the kind of intrinsically disrupted world we're living through means you're going to have to pivot over and over again. You're going to have to go... Oh, we tried that. Oh, didn't work. Got to try this. And the speed with which you do that is going to be a measure of success. And the fluidity and dynamism of the culture that allows you to do that is the greatest source of of strength for most organizations and resilience in the face of all that disruption. And so enabling and signaling that you can think this way, or these all these different ways is is important. So we, I, I like to think of us as, as sort of, Binding on our values, binding on the mission, but then diversifying all of the ways of thinking about how you fulfill that mission, and all the different ways in which you manifest those values. So don't bind on one way of thinking, or you will find yourself in a monoculture and then in a place where you can't pivot. And that's what is required, is is immense flexibility in this time.
0: So I'm interested to know, as someone that is responsible for bringing the arts into the organization, how do you choose the artist that will participate in the Artist-in-Residence program? How do you know that they are the ones that can fit into the organization or contribute to the mission that you have at Planet? when we're
1: thinking about who we're going to work with, when we're thinking about artists, first of all, we're looking at many different things. One is, are they able to think about more than one dimension? There are wonderful, magnificent artists that are hyper-specialized in one narrow field of traditional work. And they may or may not be the right fit for what we're looking for. We just named the first few artists of our artists in residence. The first one is, ai I don't think she'll be bothered by my mentioning her, her name is Holly Grimm. Holly is a, a painter and an artificial intelligence expert. She's been developing algorithms that turn her very traditional paintings of landscapes into portraits by training algorithms to convert one into the other. She's member of the Navajo Nation. She's based in the Southwest and she's interested in ways in which human beings have transformed the landscape of the Southwest. And so she's able to use satellite imagery and her painting techniques and her machine learning techniques to explore that work in more than one dimension. That's the kind of thinker who is in her practice. Her practice is is. A wider in terms of its facility with traditional techniques artistic uh, and art making techniques and her ability to use the kinds of tools and technologies and to innovate in their application and I think she's wonderful she's an amazing artist everyone should know about her should go google her the second one that we picked was a a woman named Tanya Zimena, she's based in Mexico, and she's looking at the disappearing landscapes in a very particular place along a river that is at the border of Mexico and Guatemala. And she's making physical installation work that will go into a museum. And the satellite imagery is part of the kind of physical space. So she's combining physical installation multimedia work with an environmental lens on a particular place and the satellite imagery. So again it's very multidimensional and all of the artists that we work with have or many of them I should say have this have this capability. So we are interested in seeing how they stretch their understanding and often how they're inventing new methods and how we might be able to amplify and accelerate their work and especially an additional lens is How might their work illuminate places on the earth where there are other stakeholders and where there are other communities who might change their perspective on place through the lens of the work itself without ever knowing about Planet? Like someone's going to encounter Holly's work and someone's going to encounter Tanya's work in a way that will only be marginally referenced. It will only marginally reference the satellite stuff, the satellite data and the technology, but it might create that experience for them that encourages them to do something different or to understand this place in a new way. And so we're also trying to, one of the things we're, we're trying to do at Planet is encourage people all over the world to do that. So we're looking for artists from all over the world where we can help create those sort of beacons of artistic light that radiate to local communities. We're looking at indigenous artists and in various communities and artists from every continent. A lot of exciting works. Yes,
0: for sure. That everyone can go and see on Planet's website. Again, we will add the links to everything Andrew mentioned in the show notes. Make sure to check it. So, Andrew, we are getting into the end of the podcast and I want to ask you one last question. What did you gain from the artists you interact with in Planet? What did you learn from them? Or what even surprised you? I think one of the things
1: that is, I'm, ch- I'm thinking because I've learned something different from each of them. And I want to tell you that uh, it's very important for our, our listeners to know that this is a, an organizational effort it's not just me personally. I mean, I can share my perspectives as an individual, but everything from the, the work itself, the selection of the artists it is a manifestation of a collective instinct. And it's actually collectively managed by a team that comes from all different parts of the company. And it wouldn't be the same if it wasn't just like that. It would, if, it, if it were just one person's you know, views or one person's selections, it would be a different thing. I've learned... First of all, I've been surprised by some of them. There are emotional states I've never associated with satellite imagery, like humor and, and beauty and juxtaposition and rhythm and tempo that I've learned from some of them. When you're m- monitoring the earth every day, you capture not just a picture, but you almost like a musical score. And there's a kind of poetry to the planet I think maybe one way to say this is if you were going to invent this ability 10 years ago or 20 years ago, if you were going to talk about the ability to watch anywhere on the earth or everywhere on the earth every day, you would have put that in the person of a superhero, you know, with a cape. You know, you'd write a comic book about Dr. Omniscient or something like this. When you have the ability, to think about the earth as something that you can see. you There is a new human sense, like the sense of smell or sight or sound, which is a kind of planetary sense. Like I am in relation to the planet. How is that relationship going for the planet on the other side of the relationship that I have? It's not about me, it's about it and understanding a kind of having an independent sense of how the planet is doing is awesome in the literal sense. It inspires awe and reverence. And so uh, you have this kind of, it is at once makes you feel very powerful to be able to see the planet. On the other hand, it also makes you feel
0: humble, no?
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's a weird mix of power and humility to have, to, that come together in the same experience. And, and the best work of the artists that I've seen, and I, I think about Forrest Stern's work and an artist that we had named Rochelle Gribble, others like Rochelle Reichert. They're all there's a long list of wonderful <laughs> artists who work. But what's interesting about them is that they add another dimension to that experience of power and awe, which is about, taking the understanding of the whole and then zooming into a piece or understanding that even though you think you're ha- you're seeing this ex- experience in its totality that it changes in its all its facets down to the tiniest little level in a particular place and so i don't even think i have the language to describe fully what that feels like but but i don't have the language fully to describe what it means to look like at, look at a picasso or look at you know some other magnificent piece of art it's all kind of approximations of language
0: i i really loved how you put it uh, andrew you know i always say that uh for me artists help us understand what we don't know they give us kind of language and forms to those things that are greater than us as humans uh, so so, thank you for again reinforcing my own thoughts about art uh, and and the world. Andrew, thank you very very much for coming on the podcast and sharing all your thoughts uh, about uh, technology, science, satellites, building innovative uh, culture. I really appreciate uh, the work you are doing at uh, Planet. Please continue. I think it's super important that we will have more and more examples like that that art science technology engineering are all one and we need to create more of these opportunities well thank you so much i'm i'm so
1: honored to have this opportunity to share some of what we're doing and you keep doing what you're doing too it's so important for people to to understand that you don't have to be a you know a silicon valley startup to do any of this this is something that you know these things that we're talking about here they are the artifacts by which we know our past. When civilizations pass and all civilizations pass this is what they leave behind. They leave behind their tools and their art. And so everybody should be contributing where they can to both of those things for our greater wealth and abundance. So thank you for doing what you're doing.
0: Beautiful message to to finish our uh, podcast. Uh, Once again, Andrew, thank you very, very much. Have a great day. Isn't it a beautiful message? Every one of us should contribute to the tools and art that we will leave to the future civilizations. Now that we are ending 2021 and you are going to take some time off, it is an excellent opportunity to reflect, think, and more importantly, take action. How will you contribute to the tools and art for the future civilization? What will you do in 2022? Until we meet again next year, stay healthy, enjoy the time with family and friends, and do some creative work. It's a great moment to start if you haven't already. Have a great ending for 2021 and an excellent beginning for 2022. I will be here working on a new episodes and waiting to meet you again at the Artian podcast with me, Nir Hindi. We are producing our art and tools, in that case, our podcast, as Andrew mentioned, without any help. So if you find this podcast valuable for you, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it really, really helps. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode. If you are interested in working with us and building your innovation capabilities with artists, I recommend you to check our workshops and training all available on our website. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. All our previous shows are available on our website at slash podcast We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And yes, I always say, we also have TikTok. You can reach us directly via email at podcast@dartian.com. Once again, thanks for listening.